This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hello, I'm Michael Tran, Technical Consultant, and I'm part of the BT Technical Services team, a group of qualified individuals who are able to answer any technical advice strategy queries you may have for your clients. Now, when people think about aged care, the first or perhaps the only type of care that comes to mind is care in a nursing home or residential aged care facility. However, the Australian government provides many different types of subsidised care, and Australians can access a spectrum of aged care services, including help with living at home via the Commonwealth Home Support Program, providing a low level of support, or for those with more complex care needs, there are also home care packages. There are also some short-term care options which are aimed at helping those who have lost or are at risk of losing their abilities to restore and return them to their earlier levels of independence. There's also transition care, which provides people with more confidence and regain some independence after a stay at the hospital. Finally, the one that most people associate with the concept of aged care, there's residential aged care. Joining our podcast today to discuss some of the fundamentals of residential aged care are Sean Howard and Rahul Singh who are both technical services managers at Challenger. Thanks for joining us, Rahul and Sean. Now, Rahul and Sean, I know in BT's tech team's experience, our aged care-related queries from advisors are predominantly in the residential aged care space. Do you have the same experience? And if so, what type of role do you believe financial advisors have in this area? And Also, why do you think advisors have a greater need for assistance for this particular topic? Thanks, Michael. Uh, I think I broadly agree with you. We have the same experience. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it, that on 30 June 2021, we had some uh, government numbers released. And on 30 June 2021, there were around 176,000 people that were receiving home care packages and around 184,000 people using residential aged care. Now, one would think that based on these numbers, the split of inquiries should perhaps be around the 50-50 mark, but this is simply not the case. If I was to quantify a number, uh, less than 10% of our inquiries are around home care packages. Now, I think a financial advisor has a great role to play when it comes to aged care advice. There's no doubt that the system is complicated when we look at aged care means testing, and how that interacts with social security means testing and the paperwork that's involved in uh, entering aged care and the practicalities of entering aged care. So, you know, lots of significant financial decisions to be made uh, and no doubt during an emotionally charged time. Now, I think a financial advisor can assist with demystifying the plethora of rules and work through strategies to fund uh, aged care while maximising social security entitlements uh, where possible and minimising fees uh, as well. I think advice is paramount because we want our clients to make informed decisions rather than make decisions on incomplete or misinterpreted information. What I've also found interesting is that when it comes to aged care, it's not necessarily related to product. We quite often hear from advisors uh, that Uh, They're involved in providing strategy papers to clients because at the heart of it, a lot of clients, all they want to know is what are the aged care fees? 
can they fund those aged care fees? So quite often uh, advice doesn't necessarily need to relate to product, uh, but of course, sometimes it could depending on the client's circumstance. And to the point around uh, the plethora of rules and, and the maze of, uh, of different rules around aged care, I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, we certainly hear it from time to time where a client uh, would come to an advisor and they would say, oh, advisor, uh, I've gone to the local aged care facility and they've told me that I've got to sell the home to fund my parents' aged care fees. And we know that this is simply not the default. Clients usually would have, would have options and just having uh, and, and knowing what options they have would help clients to make an informed decision. Now, to your point around why uh, advisors need assistance when it comes to aged care, I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, what stands out for me is that uh, for most advisors, you know, they tell us this, that for most advisors, uh, aged care advice is infrequent. You know, they might only be doing one or two cases a year. And the sentiment that they pass on to us is that they might have understood it in the past, but with non-regularity and legislative change, uh, it brings unfamiliarity and uncertainty around uh, aged care advice. If I look at the change of rules, I mean, I think the last five years has been interesting in that there hasn't been that much uh, change as far as financial means testing of, uh, uh, of aged care. But certainly if I look at uh, changes in the early days, you know, we had wholesale changes on 1 July 14. We then saw a change on 1 Jan 15, 1 Jan 16, and 1 Jan 17. So it goes to that point around the fact that uh, rules have changed quite often and advisors certainly need, an assist, uh, need a hand with that. If I look at some of, some of the other reasons, uh, we find that advisors would call us up uh, and inquire around the, the various uh, rules around means, test, means testing of different assets and income, you know, wh whether that be the assessment of the former home or assessment of foreign pensions or, or quite simply assessment of the RAD, the lump sum that we pay to, to the aged care facility. Also, uh, we, we know that you know, clients will bring, bring their own unique situations, uh, deviating from the stock standard plain vanilla situation. So often there's a need to discuss some of these complex cases. A couple of uh, issues come to mind that I've dealt with recently. Uh, we had, for example, uh, clients who've gone to live with their kids or have a granny flat or a life interest kind of arrangement. And advisors, you know, want to ask, how does that work? Because that kind of deviates from that uh, plain vanilla uh, home ownership kind of scenario. And, Michael, what I find is that something unique to us is uh, that Challenger does have a unique product offering, uh, you know, designed for uh, use in aged care space, where some, depending on the client's scenario or circumstances, it could help to maximise social security, minimise aged care fees and providing guaranteed income. So certainly from our perspective at Challenger, we uh, host a whole lot of questions on the use of our product, the suitability of it. And also we have an in-house uh, aged care calculator, which again uh, generates a whole lot of questions around modelling uh, and input of various assets and income. Sean, uh, do you have anything further to add on those points? Uh, yeah, Rahul, uh a couple of things you mentioned, which is very true about aged care. Firstly, it's, it is a, a complex area, particularly, uh, you know, residential aged care, you know, there's, uh, and I guess the issue with residential aged care is when someone is entering 
uh, that form of care, like you said, it is an emotionally charged time. And quite often when you have a, uh, you know, complex rules to think about, as well as uh, all these emotions running, it can lead to, I guess, irrational behavior. And, and sometimes that can result in negative outcomes when decisions or, or uninformed decisions are made. Uh, I guess the other thing that um, uh, from an advice perspective is the advisor is not just dealing with the client. Uh, the advisor is also dealing with the family, often is the case that the family is, is very involved. Uh, and I guess that adds, uh, I guess, further issues in that there may be some uh, conflict as far as prefer uh, preferences for residential aged care. Uh, if we look at what's been happening with COVID, there's a lot of, or there may be a lot of negative perception around aged care facilities. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about uh, elder abuse. So there may be, you know, uh, family might be suspicious of one another. So I guess it's, it's not just providing the financial advice. It's also, uh, you know, a lot of mediation, a lot of meetings with family, uh, with the family, with the client. And I guess you're, the, the advisor is the expert, you know, they'll, they have the answers. Uh, you know, the, like I said, the system is, is complex. Uh, even if you jump on my aged care as a novice, you know, if you're dealing with, uh, let's say your parent moving into aged care, it's not easy to get your head around all the rules. So having someone there uh, who can, uh, who knows the rules can also act as a, a mediator during this time uh, can help achieve uh, not just financial objectives, uh, but also these uh, personal objectives. Cause obviously the, the most important thing is getting this person into care and receiving the, the care and support that they need. You've both made some really great points there and something that I actually want to expand on uh, with some of the points you mentioned there. I think perhaps the main catalyst for advice in this space uh, for our clients or for advisors and their clients is the sudden need for residential aged care. Uh, the client might have experienced an accident at home, a fall. Uh, suddenly they need to go into an aged care facility. But perhaps if I take a step back, I probably see a bigger role for advisors as well. There's probably a lot of opportunity and perhaps uh, additional options that they can actually create if they're thinking together with their clients about aged care as we lead into retirement. Um, as I'm sure advisors know with the Code of Ethics Standard 6, they need to take into account broad effects arising from the client acting on their advice, actively consider the client's broader long-term interests and likely circumstances. So I think perhaps a role that I see advisors is they would actually now also act as a catalyst to engage clients to start thinking about this space. Um, I think Rahul, you mentioned perhaps the assistance that advisors need is due to their, the infrequent nature that they see with these type of cases. I think maybe if, if they're leading the conversations with their clients, we'll probably see them more frequently uh, cover this area. Uh, what do you guys think in terms of uh, how an advisor perhaps may help a client before they actually need to enter into an aged care facility? What, what type of things could they add value to? Yeah, Sean and I were talking about this, uh, Michael, the other day, and, and it was interesting that there were some statistics uh, out of the uh, the recently held Royal Commission, and and it was an interesting piece of research because the number that they were trying to point out was what is the lifetime probability uh, of someone needing aged care at age 65? So the Royal Commission put some numbers to it, and, and, and the number was that 
uh, at age 65, perhaps there's a 43% chance uh, for a 65-year-old male needing residential aged care. And similarly, uh, 59% uh, for a 65-year-old female needing residential aged care at some point in time. So I think these are pretty big numbers and a pretty high probability of needing residential aged care. And, and what these numbers reinforce to me is that, you know, how many clients do actually have those what-if discussions or have thought about what would they do uh, if they were to enter aged care? And we know that many clients might not necessarily go into aged care, but I think in this in this uh, interest of having an uh, of having an informed decision, I think having those what if discussions is helpful, uh, well before the event actually happens. So having those discussions that you know, parent, uh, have you thought about what would happen if you need to go into aged care? Child, uh, have you thought about what would happen or what you would need to do? Uh, if your parent was to go into aged care. So I think having those discussions well before uh, the event actually happens uh, could help with managing a whole lot of issues around aged care entry. Thanks, Rahul. Um, as we all have articulated, there's a lot of complexity for the scenarios involving residential aged care. Perhaps if we start with something that is often overlooked, as it's easy to dive into the detail, how do people actually access subsidised aged care? As advisors new to this space potentially or um, clients who are only experiencing it for the first time may not know where to start. They may not know about the Australian government website, uh, myagecare.gov.au, where there is an eligibility checker, which involves answering a series of questions to see if they are eligible for such services, or they may even call the My Age Care contact centre. They could, could, they could uh, then apply for and register with My Age Care. They create an online account and they can apply for an online assessment. Could you speak more to what this process involves from here? Yeah, Michael, uh, Sean here. Yeah, I'll um, I'll go through the process. Uh, there are a couple of steps involved, and you're right. Financial advisors uh, generally get involved uh, after the client has uh, been approved for aged care, uh, when the client and the family are, are wondering what to do as, as the next step. So it. It's uh, not uncommon that advisors don't actually know the, uh, the initial steps uh, to, to be approved. So I'll go through that. Uh, so firstly, the, the person has to register with my aged care. Uh, and secondly, they have to be assessed by the aged care assessment team or uh, commonly known as ACAT. Uh, in every state, it's, it's called ACAT, but in Victoria, it's known as the aged care assessment service, so ACAS. But uh, uh, typically, you, you hear ACAT assessment. So uh, firstly, to register, they can do that either, as you said, online or over the phone. Uh, so they can do that on the My Age Care website. So that was actually uh, a website that was introduced a pa uh, part of the Age Care reforms back in 2013-14. Uh, it is quite a useful uh, website, has a lot of information on the different forms of subsidised aged care as well as being able to access aged care as well. So you can register uh, using the My Aged Care website or, uh, as you said, uh, call uh, My Aged Care as well on the hotline. Now, when the person has registered, they'll create a My Aged Care client record. They'll also create a My Aged Care online account. 
Now, as with, uh, I guess, Centrelink and Medicare, uh, that will need to be linked to uh, your or the person's MyGov account and, and it can be accessed that way. Now, once they've registered, uh, they'll want to be assessed, uh, particularly if they want to access uh, subsidized care, whether it's the, the home care or residential aged care, and they'll actually need to apply for the assessment. So they need to be eligible uh, to be assessed. Again, uh, to be to apply, they can they can do this online through the MyHK website, or they can do that uh, over the phone. And if they uh, if their application is successful, then they'll actually do the assessment uh, for uh, residential aged care uh, in person. Now, uh, typically, the assessor from ACAT will go to the person's house and ask them, uh, you know, and do, I guess, like an interview. And they may also ask the person uh, if they can talk to their doctor uh, just about their uh, medical history. Now, the assessment itself, uh, so that's in person. The, the time frame, as far as how long it takes, anywhere between sort of an hour or 60 minutes to 90 minutes. And they'll ask, uh, you know, questions to gauge uh, the person's health and the help they need. So they'll ask about... Uh, any health concerns they have, uh, they'll ask about uh, you know any changes in their memory uh, from a just to see if there's any issues with uh, dementia, uh, how the person's coping with completing tasks, just their daily tasks throughout throughout the day. Uh, obviously, any uh, home and personal safety issues. Uh, they may have support that they're already receiving. It could be uh, from family. Uh, you know, maybe they've got a private carer in as well. So they'll ask about that. They'll ask about how they engage with their family and, and I guess the community in which they, they live in. And something they, they often ask is, what's their preference? Would they prefer to receive care at home? Uh, and that might be through the home care packages program, or are they happy to move into an aged care facility? You may have some instances where they might prefer to stay home, but with the care that they need, they actually need to move into a residential aged care facility. So once the assessment is done, uh, usually the outcome is received within a couple of weeks. Uh, so that there is this, this period where they, they have to wait. But during that time, what they can do is uh, research aged care facilities, uh, maybe in you know, where they're living now, maybe in uh, where their family lives uh, to see what facilities meet their, their care requirements. Now, something else that's good about the My Aged Care website is it does have what's called a, a finder service tool. And that helps individual uh, people find facilities in their area. Uh, it, it does have other information about the facilities, uh, the services they provide. And something that's very important, particularly from an advice perspective, is it also provides the maximum accommodation prices for the rooms that these facilities uh, have available. Now, why is that important from an advice perspective is because uh, the facility can't actually charge more than what they've published on the My Age Care uh, website. So it's, it's very important to know, well, how much is this uh, accommodation cost when they move into uh, residential aged care? So once they receive the approval, uh, so they'll get that through uh, the My Aged Care, they can then apply for, uh, you know, uh, for their chosen facilities, maybe more than one. Uh, once, if a facility uh, accepts them uh, to move into their facility, then there's a couple of agreements that they will have to sign. Uh, one will be the resident agreement, that's for their ongoing care. And then there's the accommodation agreement. 
and that's for individuals that have to uh, pay for uh, their accommodation. So some individuals will have their accommodation subsidized by the government and some will have to pay uh, the advertised price. Rahul, have I, was, I covered a lot there. Have I missed anything? Uh, that, that's, that sounds pretty good, Sean. I mean, the only thing I'll just add here is that uh, you've talked about uh, the medical needs assessment around ACAT, ACAS uh, getting involved. I guess there is a piece there around the financial means testing. And you would think, I mean, and, and advisors often say that my client is receiving the age pension. So, uh, you know, would Centrelink just automatically tell the client or to tell the facility what the financial breakdown of assets and income is for my client? And in this regard, uh, to, to receive government subsidies, and, and Sean, you were talking about uh, what kind of pricing you pay, whether you're paying it on, on a advertised basis or, or whether you're getting subsidised for your cost of accommodation. To work this out, uh, the, the person must complete a, uh, the com- a, a combined assets and income assessment form. So when I say must, there, there is a, a caveat, caveat there uh, for non-homeowners, which we'll have a look at. But uh, essentially, clients need to fill out some sort of a means test assessment form. Now, uh, Department of Human Services or a Department of Veteran Affairs will then use the information in this form to determine how much uh, the client is uh, subsidised as far as their cost of accommodation goes and as far as whether they're required to pay a co-contribution as their means-tested care fee. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me that uh, the clients, you know, they, they, they get, they get in, intimidated by the nature of the form. And, and, you know, in the past, we did have this really lengthy form, which from memory was extending to 60 plus questions. And thankfully, the forms have been streamlined. streamlined. So there's really three categories, I feel, with the residential aged care. There is the SA485 form, and typically a homeowner who's in receipt of a means-tested income support payment uh, would fill out that form uh, to indicate more details around the house because if you think about it from an age pension perspective, usually Centrelink is not really caring about who else is living in the home to pay you the age pension. But from an age care perspective, it's very much relevant around who is staying in the house, whether it's the spouse or whether it's some other party. So SA485 form for homeowners, uh, very streamlined information and most of the information is being asked around the home. SA457 form is really that uh, lengthy form and and SA457 form is the form to fill out for those uh, that are self-funded retirees or receiving a non-means-tested income support payment. And and the last one is an interesting one. Uh, Essentially, there is no form for a non-homeowner as long as they have updated Centrelink uh, around their assets and income uh, recently. So in that scenario, you can you can typically just get a, an assessment uh, by calling the aged care assessment team and you can get that uh, over the phone. What I also find interesting uh, is that uh, once you've done the assessment, the assessment is valid for 120 days uh, unless uh, circumstances change significantly. So there's two things uh, that, that stand out for me. One, I wouldn't mind your comment on, Sean, but one thing that, I, that stands out for me from a financial means testing point of view is that when we try to line up all our paperwork and line up all our processes to uh, effectively get client into aged care, it's, I, I think it's better to uh, you know, organise the paperwork beforehand 
rather than doing it uh, post the event, uh, because that can create uh, an addition, well, additional stress uh, levels there. So what I'm trying to say there is that where possible, there's nothing wrong in actually, uh, you know, once you've had the ACAT done, there's nothing wrong in actually then completing some of these means test assessment forms that are relevant to you. So at least you put the wheels in motion to get the assessment back from the government, uh, from, you know, from Department of Human Services or Department of Veteran Affairs, and at least that part of the process is lined up uh, rather than uh, you, know, you having to do that uh, in a really quick manner uh, down the track. And Sean, I wouldn't mind your thoughts on a similar concept around ACAT. I mean, what's your view on getting an ACAT done, uh, you know, before you enter an aged care service? Uh, you know, should you actually get an ACAT done uh, when you know that you may have, uh, a, a, you may have aged care needs down the track, not necessarily immediately? Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, as far as the ACAT, I mean, the person might not realise that they can get care uh, at the moment. So they might think that uh, they might not realize that there's something called, uh, you know, the home care packages program. So currently they may have informal carers looking after them, whether it's, you know, family uh, and, you know, the only care that they know about is uh, residential aged care. So I think it's a, a good idea uh, to do the, the ACAT assessment because maybe they will qualify for, uh, you know, home care and that might help them in their, uh, current position. Of course, if things change, they can do the, the assessment again and um, they can then access uh, residential aged care. But I think what you, what you said before about um, getting all the, you know, from the, for the income and asset testing, the means testing, getting all that sorted out, because I think quite often uh, we, we actually do get quite a, a few calls on, you know, someone has moved into care and they haven't got the assessment back and the facility is charging them, you know, an interim fee and then, uh, you know, once they get the assessment back, it all has to be reconciled, uh, you know, going forward. And that can be a cause for a lot of confusion. Uh, or the advisor may not know that the person hasn't got their assessment back and they'll call us saying, oh, you know, the clients, uh, you know, got this level of income and assets and I calculate the fees to be this level. However, the facility is charging this amount uh, because, you know, uh, DHS uh, or DVA hasn't come back uh, with the with the assessment, so uh, yeah, I think it's a, a good idea to do, uh, you know, to to be prepared. Uh, and the I guess the other issue that we we often find is when advisors get involved in the process. At what point do they get involved? And sometimes they get involved at a point where you know things can't be undone. You know, whether it's to do with the the, the assessment uh, when they first move in, whether it's to do with uh, keeping or selling a former home. Uh, you know, that's that's something that happens quite often is the advisor comes in very late in the piece and, uh, you know, the, the client's moved in, they've, um, you know, maybe sold some assets, sold the home. And, you know, if they had sought advice earlier, uh, it would have improved their outcomes substantially because of the way that the assessments, uh, the assessments work. So, yeah, definitely agree. Uh, see, you know, the advisor should be involved as soon as possible, uh, you know, line their ducks up. Uh, or, you know, as, even if you're talking to a retiree client, uh, you know, definitely, you know, if you gauge that, if the advisor gauges that, you know, aged care may be uh, on the horizon, then definitely look at getting that uh, ACAT assessment to see what's available as far as aged care, whether it's initially at home and then subsequently in a facility. Thanks for that, Sean. Yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, I think, 
simply the later you leave, uh, I guess, consultation with an advisor from a client's point of view, the fewer options will probably be available. You probably have taken, as you mentioned there, actions that can't be reversed. Um, you might run out of time to do certain things as well. Uh, just a point to touch on before we move on to the next question as well. Rahul, you mentioned the, the forms uh, that need to be completed for means testing, the SA485 and the SA457. Uh, for advisors who haven't um, had any, I guess, cases in this space or for their clients, they can actually look up those codes on the Services Australia website just to familiarise themselves with what the forms can look like, um, just so that uh, they know, I guess, the types of information and what types of information uh, the Department of Human Services or DVA will ask for. Um, Sean, you did also touch on the pivotal part of finding an appropriate facility. I think you mentioned there about the aged care website and finding a service. Um, again, this is absolutely where the My Aged Care website can uh, help clients, particularly with comparing different facilities. I like to get advisors to ask their clients to think about uh, this aspect almost in the same way as how they would look at finding a new principal home, say if they're buying a new home after selling an old one. Things like the proximity to family, their friends, the reputation of the facility, the quality of the accommodation, they're all going to be essential. Um, the My Aged Care website also does allow for certain filters to be applied to narrow the client search. Uh, for example, they may have a special, uh, specialized care need, such as uh, they may have cognition difficulties or experience dementia. Uh, they may have, there are actually facilities there that specialize in there or have a particular room for that. Uh, they may have an inclination perhaps towards a particular cultural language or religious preference or background, um, each, a lot of facilities will actually cater to that too. What else could they do to find the best facility that meets their needs, in your opinion? Well, uh, Sean and Michael, I think you've stole, stolen a little bit of my thunder here, but I totally agree with you that uh, the My Age Care website uh, is, is, I think, is a fantastic resource uh, to, you know, is to establish the facilities that are available uh, in the local area. And once we've found uh, a list of those uh, those local facilities, I, I guess the question that I'm interested in here is how do I then hone in on the facility that I want I want my client or you know my parent or my loved one to go into? And I think that's a really interesting one because Unlike perhaps uh, other goods uh, where there may be uh, reviews and, and uh, there may be detailed information around product specification, there necessarily isn't that granular detail uh, with, with aged care facilities. So how do we hone in on that, on that choice to find uh, the facility that we want to go into? Uh, I think there's a number of uh, ways of doing that. Uh, it, it could very much be a case of uh, contacting those facilities uh, whether verbally or then making a point to go into the uh, local facility and, and looking at uh, the, the features and the facilities on offer and then finding out from there uh, which ones uh, you like and, and can afford. And I think it's really interesting that, uh, and I've seen this happen you know, a lot of times, that when, when, when clients for the first time uh, approach advisors, 
they just simply start off saying that my parent needs to go into aged care. And that's the headline statement. My parent needs to go into aged care. And what, from a planning perspective, that doesn't really tell us is what is the uh, advertised price for that facility? Uh, if, I, if I reflect on uh, pricing variances, uh, you know, perhaps that range is, 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 a, is a huge range anywhere from, let's say, $250,000, typically in regional areas, to around about $3.5 million in the uh, eastern suburbs of Sydney. So I need to know what is that advertised price for the room if I am subject to advertised pricing because I'm a high means resident. Uh, I need to know that advertised pr uh, price because then I can start to think about from an advice perspective, how am I going to fund uh, the, 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 the RAD or ADAPT uh, when it comes to aged care entry? So I would encourage advisors, uh, you know, as, as Sean and Michael were saying, I would encourage advisors to get their clients who come to them with this headline statement that my parent needs to go into aged care uh, to figure out, you know, what is that advertised price for the room? And, and, and the My Aged Care website is a great resource uh, to, do that, to, do, to, to do that. Also, uh, in terms of finding and honing in on the facility that you, that you like, one other thing that, uh, that clients can do is that they can essentially outsource that research um, bit. They, you know, they can outsource that to uh, aged care placement consultants. So the, these are firms who, uh, who, who are in this space. Essentially, they have relationships with facilities. So they've done the background research on the features uh, the facilities offer, uh, as you were saying, Michael, around uh, perhaps particular uh, speciality towards particular ethnic groups, including languages or religion uh, or particular illnesses. So they've done the background research uh, around uh, suitability uh, of a facility uh, on that point of view. Furthermore, because they've got that ongoing relationship uh, with the facility, uh, they may also be aware of uh, vacancies uh, in that facility. The vacancy bit I find really interesting because there is no public website uh, that actually tells uh, consumers what is the vacancy ratio uh, in a local facility. So, you know, you may sometimes, depending on the demand, uh, market uh, demand, uh, supply and demand, you may have to wait depending on the facility in the local area. So, you know, these aged care placement consultants may be aware of uh, vacancies in the facility, which might be helpful to, again, hone in on that facility uh, that you want to go into. As far as costs go, uh, because you are, you are outsourcing this, uh, you know, some aged care placement consultants uh, will charge residents for the service. I don't have an exact figure, but anecdotally, uh, we're told that the fee may vary around the $2,000 to $3,000 mark. And it's also interesting that uh, some aged care placement consultants will actually have relationships with facilities where facilities pay them a referral fee and therefore there is no upfront uh, cost to the resident. Sean, any, any further points to uh, add to that? Yeah, so something that's uh, happening now, we've got the, um, the aged care reform. So they, the government is currently reforming the aged care system and they've called it the five pillars over five years. Now, uh, something that they're focusing on is, uh, I guess, transparency, uh, and um, what they're going to introduce, and at this at this stage, it's we're looking at the end of this year, is a star rating system for aged care facilities. So the way that will work is uh, each facility will have a, like an overall star rating, 
and they will have a star rating for subcategories. So things like uh, quality, uh, service compliance, consumer experience, and staff care minutes, just so that individuals or people that are looking or comparing aged care facilities, uh, I guess they can use this system to do, a, I guess, like a quick snapshot uh, to compare the aged care facilities that they're interested in. Uh, the government has a lot of other initiatives uh, around this. So uh, they're going to do more uh, aged care facility site audits. Um, so that will uh, form part of the star rating for, for service compliance. Uh, they're also going to do face-to-face uh, -face interviews uh, with individuals that are in residential aged care uh, just to get, I guess, uh, for uh, customer experience star rating. And uh, what they're also doing is having aged care facilities uh, report their, their staff care minutes. At the moment, uh, what they've introduced is uh, for this to be reported on an annual basis uh, through the aged care financial report. So that'll, uh, that'll form the basis for uh, the uh, staff care minutes star rating. So, yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot of uh, reform going on uh, to increase uh, transparency and, you know, give uh, perspective aged care residents uh, more, more information so they can make more informed decisions. They're really great tips and a good insight from you, Sean, just then into what's coming on the horizon to assist advisors and clients with uh, determining the quality of a facility. Um, now, you both touched on a crucial aspect as well, being the cost of accommodation or the advertised price of the room. As I'm sure you've been asked often as well, a common question that we get is, well, what if the client can't afford the deposit or the other costs? Well, fortunately, with a government subsidised system and with a policy position of equity applied, there is a means-tested assessment. And as you mentioned, um, there's also an additional significance to the first means test conducted, as this is used to determine whether an aged care resident is considered a low means resident. Could you speak to how this is determined and what the implications are? Yeah, so we've... Well, Rahul's spoken about the, the cost of accommodation and, it, and it, there's quite a broad range. Uh, but if you look at the average cost, uh, you're looking at around about uh, 470000 is the average uh, advertised price. Uh, but the average agreed price is looking at about 410000 So it's still quite a significant amount. If you look over the last few years, you'll also find that the cost has been steadily increasing. Uh, now, Something else I mentioned before was aged, aged care facilities have to publish their, maxima, their maximum accommodation prices on the My Aged Care website. Uh, so that, from an advice perspective, that'll give you a good idea of what the client uh, uh, will, have to, will have to pay for accommodation. And what, what I typically find when, I, when I've looked at the website myself and I've entered a, a particular area, uh, the pricing between the aged care facilities in a particular area are all quite similar. So sometimes the, uh, the client may not have decided which particular facility they want, but they approach an advisor for advice. Uh, even as the advisor, you can jump on the My Aged Care website, enter the postcode or the, or the suburb where the, the client wants to live, and you can get an idea of what it's going to cost uh, for accommodation in that area. Now, there are, there are a few options to pay for accommodation. Uh, this is something that changed back in 2014. 
Uh, so the government gave uh, changed the rules so that uh, residents would have a lot more uh, options uh, or, or flexibility in how they pay for their accommodation. So there's a there's a few ways uh, you can pay for accommodation as a lump sum, you can pay for it as a daily payment, and for added flexibility, you can pay it as a combination of lump sum and daily payment. So how do they? Uh, how do you work out the equivalent daily payment versus lump sum? Well, essentially, the daily payment is the interest cost on the outstanding lump sum. So whatever the individual has been unable to pay as a lump sum, the daily payment will actually be uh, the interest cost on the amount that hasn't been paid. Now, the interest rate does change every quarter. It's uh, the government uh, has something called a maximum permissible interest rate, which is the maximum amount that a facility can charge uh, in a particular quarter. Uh, when an individual enters residential aged care, whatever the maximum permissible interest rate was in that quarter, uh, they will stay, that's the interest rate that they will be charged. So even if they're still in residential aged care in the following quarter and the interest rate goes up or down, they will stay on the interest rate as it was when they first uh, entered residential aged care. I mentioned that the individuals uh, or the, the resident can pay for their accommodation as a combination of lump sum and daily payment. Just to add flexibility to, to that, what the individual can also do is have the daily payment deducted from the lump sum. So if they're, if they're having some issues with cash flow or even from an advice perspective, this is, this is a useful uh, option uh, if the client is having a, a cash flow issue uh, when they're paying for their accommodation as well as their ongoing care. So whatever they pay as a lump sum, you can have the daily payment component of that, so the amount that is outstanding as a lump sum, have the daily payment come out of the lump sum that has been paid. Uh, one issue that does arise from that is as you're having the daily payment come out of the lump sum, well, the outstanding lump sum is actually going up because you're, having, you're deducting the daily payment from that. And therefore, because the daily payment is the interest, essentially the interest on the outstanding amount, the outstanding amount is going up. Therefore, the daily payment is going up. So that's something to be, to be wary of. From a, uh, I guess from the client's perspective, something else that added flexibility was the client uh, has 28 days after they enter residential aged care to decide their payment method, whether it's lump sum or daily payment. So what that has done, uh, prior to 2014, aged care facilities used to accept individuals based on uh, the amount that they were going to pay as well as their payment method. So by giving the uh, individual flexibility in that they don't have to decide their payment method for 28 days. It gave the power back to the individual as far as, well, now when you move into aged care, you don't have to tell them how you're going to fund your accommodation uh, within the first 28 days. Uh, so we mentioned before about low means. Uh, so how is uh, you know, someone who enters care as low means uh, can have a lot of their aged care costs subsidized by the government? So I'll talk a little bit about that now. Uh, so generally for someone to be classified as a low means person, uh, they have to have uh, accessible assets and income below a certain level. And, and what we typically find is that it's the assets, the person's assets at the time of entry that determine whether they're considered uh, a low means resident or a high means resident. The word they actually use is accommodation payment resident, but let's just use a high means resident. 
And if you look at the numbers at the moment, you're looking at around about 178,000. So if someone is below, has uh, less than 178,000 in assessable assets at the time of entry, ignoring income, uh, they'll be considered a low means individual. Now, why is that uh, important? Well, low means individuals can have all or part of their accommodation uh, subsidized by the government. Uh, there's also a cap on the amount that an individual, uh, a low means resident will pay for their accommodation and it's capped currently at $60.74 uh, per day. So the low means individual can have their uh, accommodation subsidized by the government and their, their daily accommodation contribution is capped at $60.74. So what if a person is not low means, they're high means? So let's say their assessable assets are greater than 178000 when they enter. Well, what happens there is they will not be eligible for any subsidy of their accommodation uh, by the government. So essentially, they will have to, uh, they'll, their accommodation payment will be based on the advertised price and obviously whatever they agree uh, with the aged care facility. Something uh, else I wanted to mention with regards to being classified as low means or high means. So this is determined when the person first moves in based on their assets and income. But like I said, generally speaking, it's the assets that'll determine if someone is low means or high means. Now that classification will stay with that person while they're in that facility. So even if you know, their means increase, let's say they inherited uh, you know, someone's estate after they entered the facility and they were low means because their assets were below 178,000. If they inherited 500,000 after that, now after they've moved into the facility, if they're still in that same facility, they will still be classified as a low means uh, individual. So, uh, so under what circumstances can someone change from low means to high means and vice versa? Uh, that's only going to be uh, the case if they change facilities and then they'll be uh, reassessed. Uh, at that point, depending on their assets, uh, when they enter the new facility, that will determine whether they continue to be uh, low or, or high means. So I'd say the, the accommodation cost is, I guess it's, it's somewhat complex, but, it's, but the reason it's complex is because of all, because of the flexibility, because of the options uh, the client has. Uh, something else that's important where the individual pays a lump sum is that lump sum doesn't count for Centrelink means testing. So there are a lot of uh, aspects uh, or uh, considerations with regards to the accommodation payment. Uh, there's lots of options. And, you know, from a means testing, from a Centrelink means testing perspective, uh, there are, uh, you know, some benefits uh, to, pay, to paying for the accommodation as a lump sum, particularly if they're, uh, they're asset tested for Centrelink purposes. Rahul, any, any further comments on that? Some great points there, Sean. A um, couple of points stood out for me um, based on what you just said. One thing, well, a couple of points. So one point was your point around the fact that the average published price in uh, metro areas was around uh, $470,000 and the average agreed price uh, was around $410,000. So clearly a $60,000 difference between what the facilities advertise their price to be and uh, 60,000 difference in terms of what uh, the clients uh, actually enter into the agreement with. So what that reinforces for me there and uh, is that aged care price doesn't need to be a fixed price per se. There is a maximum cap 
but uh, it can be negotiated. And certainly uh, we hear from advisors from time to time that clients have simply asked the question, uh, you're asking me for 500,000, any potential to reduce that? And they may, well, we don't really have exact number around the success factor around that, but the point is that by just asking that question, clients and advisors could potentially influence the number. What's the worst you'll, uh, what's the worst that will happen? Uh, usually the facility would just say, no, we don't negotiate. But certainly based on that uh, discrepancy between the published price and the agreed price, no, no harm in asking uh, the question around negotiation to reduce the price downwards. The other thing I found interesting, uh, Sean, and you made this point around uh, the requirement uh, since 2014 around uh, the maximum uh, accommodation price. And I think this, this has been a really positive change because uh, if, I looked at, look, if I look back, and it's, I know it's going back eight years ago, but if I look back at the system that we had eight years ago, uh, you know, pre-2014, it was interesting that the price for the room differed based on the assets and income of the particular clients. And so sometimes there will be winners out of that kind of, uh, out of that measure and there will be losers out of that. So as an example, uh, if a client had a million dollars, they could have paid approximately back in the day, a price of up to $950,000 for the same room, contrasted to a client who perhaps had $200,000 in assets, uh, the price for the same room for that lower asset client could have been $150,000. So, I think this has been a good change that uh, the, the price is advertised, uh, it's, it's transparent, and the price doesn't move uh, depending on uh, your client's asset positions. Obviously, there is a bit of an issue there that if the client's uh, accessible assets, and, and Sean touched on this figure of 178839 if your client's assets for more than 178839 they're high means. Sometimes there are issues around funding of wage care fees where the RAB price is more than uh, the, what client has, but the client uh, is, is unsubsidized for their cost of accommodation because their accessible assets are more than 178839 So I think, yeah, just, just expanding on those points there, Sean, uh, some great points there. A couple of other things just to add there is you've touched on this uh, the threshold of 178839 So obviously a very key figure in determining under the asset component uh, of the means-tested amount, whether you're low means or high means, a, a key figure. And one thing we'll just point out here is that you know, there's been a lot of debate around the assessment of the home, uh, how that should be assessed for both social security or aged care. And if I come back to uh, aged care assessment, in a roundabout way, the, uh, the home is effectively uh, being assessed uh, to make someone a high means. So what I mean by that is that in terms of the assessment of the house, it's all about who's living in the house and whether an eligible person's living in there, uh, what we call in terminology uh, speak, whether a protected person is living in the house. Where a protected person is living in the house, the home is exempt for as long as there is a protected person living in the house. Who's a protected person? Uh, it's a spouse. It's a carer who's lived in the home for two years and uh, eligible or receiving an income support payment or a close relative uh, who's lived in the home for five years and, again, eligible to re eligible receiving an income support payment. So if the home is being resided by a protected person, the home is exempt. Uh, where it's not being resided by a protected person, it's assessed as an asset 
but capped at that 178,839 figure. So you can see that that's quite deliberate. Uh, I think that's a, quite, a, quite a deliberate policy measure where if you don't have a protected person staying in the home, uh, the rules would simply assess that person as, uh, as a high means resident, assuming the value of the house is more than 178839 And that would mean that that person uh, would become a high means resident and would be paying their cost of accommodation based on advertiser rat or DAP. From a category point of view, uh, if I just you know broadband different categories of clients, I think what that means is that for most of our single clients who don't have a protected person staying in the home, they're usually going to be high means residents. If I look at couples and where a couple's assets are more than three hundred and three, roughly three hundred sixty thousand odd, basically one hundred seventy eight thousand times two. Uh, if their assets are more than that 360,000 threshold, given that uh, if, if one member of the couple is staying in the home, the home is exempt. If their assets are more than 360,000, that, uh, that, that member of a couple going into aged care is likely to be a high means resident. So that, that's the bit around just you know, broadbanding categories of clients where they're likely to fall uh, as a low means or a high means resident. And just one thing I'll just add as a final point here is that that uh, sometimes you can target clients uh, being low means or high means, uh, especially if they are around that, uh, that, that, that threshold mark, that accessible asset mark of you know, $170,000 to $200,000 mark. By use of gifting, funeral bonds, you, know, you can have a look at uh, how that client enters into aged care, whether they go in as a low means or high means. Lots of different dynamics uh, around that. Uh, we are in charge or our mandate is to actually do monthly articles on aged care. And that was actually one of the topics that we wrote about uh, around whether a person should go in as a low means or high means, different dynamics around that. So I won't take you through that. If you are interested, uh, there is a technical paper that goes into a lot more detail uh, around that particular aspect of it. Thanks, Rahul. Yeah, that's actually an intricacy that's I think a lot of the time overlooked. Uh, I've presented on uh, that topic. I think I touched on it in a webinar in the past. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. There's certainly a lot to consider in this area. We're only really scratching the surface. Um, Sean and Rahul, thank you for your valuable insights and your time today. As there is more to discuss, I think we'll look to run a few more sessions with you both and pick up from where we left, uh, maybe to dive into this topic a little bit more in future podcasts. Now, remember, if you have any technical questions, you can contact the BT Technical Services team on 1800 655 901 or by email to technical at and you can also join us for our fortnightly BT Academy webinars, where we discuss all things technical and regulatory in the advice space. Our next fortnightly session is scheduled for uh, Wednesday, the 25th of May, when I will be presenting on a related topic, home care packages. I'll run through what care recipients may be entitled to, what they can use these packages for, 
who may be eligible, as well as delve into the different fees involved. To register, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. Like all our webinars, the session will be available on demand. And if you can't join us live, um, all sessions are also accredited for CPD purposes. Until next time, bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.